Father, in Jesus' precious name, we just love you, Lord, and we just, we just love the, the church family that you've given us here. And um, it, the people here are just so, okay, some of us are a little gruff, Lord, but the fact of the matter is we're just so easy to love. We love one another, and we're showing the world that we're your disciples by our love for one another. <clears throat> but remind us, Lord, too, that there, there's a church outside this building that there's the Kitsap County Church and the American Church and the Global Church and that we have that unity in Christ. So as we study this passage um, on the uh, mystery of the church, may we not downplay the importance of the church. And may we not confuse the church for some organization, something organized by man like the, the Roman Catholic Church or the Greek Orthodox Church or even, even different denominations. Uh, may we understand that the true church is all those who are true followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, who trust in him alone for salvation and are indwelt by his Holy Spirit and empowered by his Holy Spirit to be all uh, that you called us to be. And um, so, Lord, today, you know, these are the people of God that have come here to hear your word. They didn't come here to hear the wisdom of man. Lord, you know I'm a fallible man. Only your son was infallible. And so I pray, Lord, that uh, you would anoint me with your spirit and empower me to proclaim your truth, that you would cancel the man so that your truth would be proclaimed from this pulpit. And obviously, Lord, we know that uh, you've, you guaranteed that your word would be written without error, but you make no guarantee of that for preachers who get behind a pulpit that we could misrepresent your word. So in case that happens, I pray that you give the people, like John said, the courage and the wisdom of the Bereans, that they would test everything they hear from this pulpit, everything they hear and see everywhere else, they would test it with your word, and if it doesn't pass that test, they would reject it. Let God be true, and every man a liar. I pray, Lord, that you would empower us to apply these truths to our lives, so that we could be all that you called us to be through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit and so that we could build your kingdom and not our own, live for your son Jesus, not ourselves, and um, live for your glory, not our own glory, until that day when your son, the Lord Jesus, takes his stand upon the earth. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. You know, uh, Paul... You know, when he writes his letters, man, I mean, you could, you could write a book on, not even on each sentence, but each phrase. You could write entire books on just words that he uses. Um, and so it's, it's really difficult to keep in mind, okay, what is the main theme of this passage that we're going on? So just remember that the entire chapter 3, and he, he introduces it in chapter 2, but it's the mystery of the church. Something unknown in the Old Testament, but made known in the New Testament. And the, the church is that, you know, it used to be Gentiles could be saved in the Old Testament, like Rahab the harlot, she was a Canaanite. And um, um, Ruth was a Moabite. Gentiles could get saved, but they would have to convert to Judaism and worship the God of Israel, Okay. And now all of a sudden it's just like, no, now that the Jewish Messiah has come and was rejected by the Jewish religious establishment, though tens of thousands of first century Jews trusted in Jesus for salvation, um, the Jewish establishment rejected him and salvation went to the Gentiles. So that now both Jew and Gentile can form one body in the church. And the word for church, ecclesia, it just means a called out assembly. The Old Testament saints used to assemble. So they're also an assembly of God's followers. But Jesus said, I will build my church, future tense. Okay? When he was talking to Peter and the apostles at Caesarea Philippi, when, they, when Peter acknowledged that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it, and, um, and so Jesus' own particular assembly was yet to come, 
And that came when the promised Holy Spirit came on the Feast of Pentecost. Fifty days after the crucifixion, uh, Jesus baptized the church with the Holy Spirit, okay? And they began to speak in other languages, and, um, and that was, Peter preached the sermon, 3,000 people got saved, okay? And so the church is uh, Jew and Gentile in one body, followers of Jesus Christ, called out of the world to assemble and follow Jesus Christ. This is why the shutdowns were pretty crazy. You know, they, they told the, the assembly to stop assembling. And we're supposed to have freedom of speech and freedom of religion and freedom to gather, freedom to assemble, and uh, God-given freedoms. So I appreciate that our government wanted to give us what they thought was good advice. By, by the way, almost every bit of advice they've given us, they've taken back at one time or another, and then come back. So it's like, who knows what? And um, yeah, people say you, you express a view, and they say, well, that's anti-scientific. No, it just it depends which ways the medical experts vote. That determines what their views on. So it's more political than anything. But when everything's said and done, you know, the president said, give us 15 days. So we shut down for 15 days. Then give us enough time to, to flatten the curve. So we flattened the curve. And then they just kept indefinitely shutting us down. But then all of a sudden started the Black Lives Matter riots and the Antifa riots. And then um, Dr. Fauci said, the social justice message, which is really Marxism, the social justice message is more important than social distancing. And that's when I realized, okay, this is political. This, you know, because the pastor loves his people. You know, if we were all going to come and gather together and then die, well, we don't want that to happen. And um, that's when I realized this was more political than everything else and started researching it more. We started meeting in the homes. Then we were eventually allowed to, to come together. Some churches never shut their doors, but they had kind of their own autonomy. We don't have our own autonomy here. And um, so, you know, that's one of the reasons why we're looking for a, a building. And, you know, there's pros to that and there's cons to that. So we really have to be, uh, be in prayer. But we are called to assemble. God has called us out of the world to assemble, to fellowship with each other and study God's word, and, um, and serve the community, and preach the gospel, and disciple one another, and baptize those who come to Christ, and celebrate the Lord's Supper, and uh, discipline uh, wayward brothers and sisters. It's not, it's not a social club, okay? You come in here on Sundays with your wife, and then one Sunday you show up with a woman who's not your wife, you better let me know that that's your sister, okay? And, um, and we, we did have that one day. A guy came in, one of our brothers. It was his sister visiting from Georgia, you know? But I wanted the whole story there. And, uh, and that guy was a single guy. But I still wanted to know, okay, who's this lady? You're looking a little friendly with this lady. It's your sister. And it's like, oh, okay, she's from Georgia. I haven't seen her for years. So, yeah, they're friendly. But, um, but whatever the case... Um, uh, it's not a country club. You know, we represent Jesus. And uh, now God has not given any one of us the gift of judging. So it's not your job to be a private investigator for the Lord and, and spy on people and take notes. He said a bad word on money, you know, stuff like that. At the same time, if, you know, there's a sinning brother, Matthew 18 tells us, you confront him. If they don't repent, take two or three witnesses. If they still don't repent, then you bring it before the church leadership. Okay, and they may have to be excommunicated. You know, if we got if we, you got a guy in the church who thinks he's Romeo, and is mistreating a lot of ladies. You know, we're gonna we're gonna deal with that guy. We've had to do things like that in the past. But the church, why the church? Well, Jew and Gentile. Why is it so important for Paul to talk about it? Jew and Gentile, one body in the Lord. Paul's writing to Ephesians. They're mostly Gentiles. So they felt like, oh, I'm a second-class Christian. And Paul's saying, no, you're not. You are not a second-class Christian. Jews and Gentiles come together in Christ. Boy, if that's not a message that we need to hear today, we're being told, even by preachers in America, 
who've accepted the faulty wisdom of man that everybody has to be divided in the oppressors and the oppressed and the color of your skin determines whether you're an oppressor or an oppressed. Critical race theory creeping into the churches. Even the Southern Baptist Convention is still battling that issue. Okay? You want to read a good book on it? Josh, where are you? Hold up uh, Fault Lines. Uh, really good book. I like to say a friend of mine, but only met him once at a conference we spoke at, Vody Bauckham, and wrote a book on fault lines on critical race theory. He's a godly Christian preacher and a great thinker, and um, he happens to be an African-American brother. Of course, now he, is he, he moved to, what, Zambia, I think? And, uh, but whatever the case, he heads a Bible college there. But just keep in mind that um, there are people who are trying to divide us. And the fact of the matter is, it's just like, um, I think her name is Alveda King, Dr. Alveda King, uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s daughter, uh, or is she a niece? I think she's a niece. But just like she said, look, there's only one human race. Okay, there's not different races of humans. There's different ethnic groups. And guess what? We've been warring with each other. You know, you're not like me. I'm better than you. We've been warring with each other for centuries, for millennia, and then Jesus shows up. And so Paul could say, there's no Greek and barbarian. That's the way the Greeks broke things down. We're the Greeks, everybody else is a barbarian. We're the Jews, we're the Gentile, we're the Jews, they're the Gentile pagans. Okay? And Paul says, no, no, we're one in Christ. So that's a big deal. Paul's also pointing out in this passage, what, what's the big deal about the church? Well, Jew and Gentile, one body. So basically, uh, there, there's nothing that is more multicultural on the planet Earth other than the church. And we've allowed the world to lie about us and, um, and act like we're segregated here, segregated there. And uh, people choose what churches they go to. You can't force people to go to your church. And, uh, but whatever the case, the, the universal church is made up of people of almost every nation. On the, well, we are made up of every nation on earth, but there's a few language groups, a few ethnic groups and language groups that the gospel still hasn't been preached to. Now, when they're preached to, look up for your redemption draws near. And, um, and we're getting close there. But Jew and Gentile forming one body, baptized by the Holy Spirit and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would anoint kings, would come upon prophets and speak through them, but the Holy Spirit would not permanently indwell them in the Old Testament. That's why Jesus promised in John 14, 15, and 16, the coming Holy Spirit, that he'd be with you forever. That's why Jesus could say of John the Baptist, there wasn't a man born a woman greater than John the Baptist, yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than him. Okay? Like John the Baptist could announce the coming of Jesus. But now we believers, now that the kingdom of God has come to earth spiritually by Jesus reigning through the hearts of believers, we've not only seen Jesus or heard of Jesus or read about Jesus uh, but now he indwells us with the, with the Holy Spirit and with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit comes power so those three things aren't in your notes if you want to write that down the church why is Paul spending so much time talking about the church because you and Gentile form one body okay because the Holy, of Holy Spirit indwelling and Holy Spirit baptism and because of that this new power, this power from the Holy Spirit that we receive. So this is a really big deal. And again, it has a lot of application for what we're going through today because all kinds of people... Right now, if you don't break down people into different ethnic groups, you're a racist. And it used to be, if you did break them down into different groups and said, this group is better than that group, or this group is the good guys, that group is the bad guys... That was what used to be a racist. Now it's been all twisted around. So, you know, Pastor Vody Bauckham says, no, we're all 
regardless of the color of our skin, uh, we're all one in Christ. He's a ra- he's Well, they can't, because he's black, they don't call him a racist, but they've got other bad names for him. Okay? And, um, and so the church, you know, how, what, what is God's plan to bring people together? Is it cultural Marxism? Neo-Marxism? Is it socialism? No. And by the way, that plan, socialism and government assistance doesn't work. You, you realize the, what was it? Um, I, I think it was almost 70% of all black families had two parents in the home going into the 1960s. And since the 1960s, it's dropped down um, to where even among inner city blacks, black homes, now it's uh, um, less than, uh, sometimes less than uh, 20%. Uh, the nation's average is, is, is 30%. And so socialism doesn't work. Big government is not your friend. It's like Ronald Reagan said, the, what did he say, the scariest certain amount of words that you'll ever hear is, hi, I'm the government, we're here to help. Okay, and um, and so uh, so now let, let's pick it up. We we've covered the first few verses we're going to look at here, but start at verse fourteen because we need to to get the context. Ephesians three verse fourteen. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is passionately praying here, bowing his knees, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Now, uh, remember, pater for father and uh, patria for family, the Greek words of the whole idea, concept of family, and the whole family of those who've been created um, comes from the Greek word for father. And so Paul does that, a little, little play on words there. Verse 16, that he grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might. God doesn't want us to be spiritual wimps. We might be wimps in the eyes of the world. Okay? I was probably viewed as a much tougher guy before I got saved than after I got saved. Because before I got saved, uh, I actually wasn't really tougher, but I, I, was, uh, I didn't turn the other cheek. So nobody wanted to mess with me. When you turn the other cheek, people, sometimes people catch wind of that, and they keep messing with you because they know, Fernandez isn't going to hit me. Okay? Now, if they knew how tempted I was to hit them, they, maybe they wouldn't mess with me. But God doesn't want us to be wimps. He wants us to, to be strengthened with might, with power, through his spirit in the inner man. So that's where God does, you know, um, some of the most powerful people who have ever lived were small, skinny people. But, you know, true, true strength is is inner strength. And you can't get any more inner strength than to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. I mean, if James Madison walked into this room right now, he'd be unimpressive. You'd think I'm short, okay? That guy is probably about three, four inches shorter than me. He probably probably makes Anthony Fauci look like a bodybuilder, okay? Uh, I don't know if James Madison even weighed 100 pounds, to be honest with you. But I would tell you, he was one of the most powerful men in American history because of his faith in God and, um, and his intellect. Okay? God wants us to look. You know, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. If God judged things the way we judge things, he would have made Eliab the next king of Israel. How good would that have done? He said, no, it was a skinny teenage boy named David out with the flock. He's a man after God's own heart, okay? And, uh, and I want him to be the next king uh, of Israel. But God wants us to obey him from the heart, and so we need that inner strength, that inner power that comes only from the Holy Spirit. Verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. How does Christ dwell in our hearts? Through faith. It's not like if, if I could just do good things then Christ will dwell in my heart. No. Christ will dwell in the hearts of the poor in spirit. Those who acknowledge that they're spiritually bankrupt, that they don't deserve heaven, 
that they deserve hell. Okay? Christ will dwell in our hearts through what? Through faith. Through faith in him. We trust in him. Not just for salvation, but for guidance and the power to live the overcoming life in our Christian walks. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Uh, do, do we even pray that for ourselves, let alone for other believers? Lord, dwell in my heart. You know, like we, we quoted from last week from uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians, that it's, it's, it's Christ who lives in me. It's not me. Christ lives his faith through me, uh, lives, lives my life through me. And uh, we want Christ to dwell in our hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. See, the Ephesians, man, they had that knowledge. I'm glad that Trinity Bible Fellowship, we, we recognize who are the false teachers versus who are the true preachers. We get, we're getting grounded in the word, and I'm, I'm proud of you for that. The Ephesians had that too, and you know what? They kept that for a whole generation. They kept that knowledge. They, they could pick out a false apostle in a heartbeat. They could say, oh, that guy's contradicting this passage of the scriptures. Don't listen to him. He's a false teacher. They kept that. But what did they lose? They lost their first love. Okay? Paul's going to encourage them to speak the truth in love in the next chapter. Yes, knowing God's truth is one thing, but we've got to apply that truth too, and we've got to be people of love. People who love the Lord with our whole hearts, through the power of the Holy Spirit, and love our neighbors as ourselves. I, you know, I'll go so far to say this. Anyone throughout history who loves God with their whole heart and loves their neighbor as themselves will go to heaven. But guess what? We're not capable of doing that unless we trust in Jesus for salvation. The Holy Spirit makes us born again. And now we even got an advantage over the Old Testament saints because the Holy Spirit doesn't leave us. And he indwells us and empowers us. So yeah, you, you love God and you got, you love your neighbors yourself, you're going to heaven. But a lot of people think they're doing that. A lot of people think that's what Mahatma Gandhi did. No. Mahatma Gandhi said, I could not accept that Jesus was uniquely God. If he's God, I'm God. If I'm not God, he's not God. So Mahatma Gandhi was saying, I am willing to accept Jesus of Nazareth as my peer. Dude, I don't want to be in your shoes on a judgment day. Okay? Jesus is not your peer. I feel sorry for you, Mahatma. Okay? He's not your peer. He's your God. If you turn to him for salvation, he'd be your savior too. And, um, you know, and it, it, didn't, it didn't take our work to get us to heaven, but it took the work of Jesus, the work of Christ, to get us to heaven. He died on the cross for our sins and took our punishment for us and then rose from the dead to conquer death for us. But the, the Ephesians, they lost... Their, their first love. But he wanted them to be rooted and grounded in love. Are you rooted and grounded in love? Some days I feel like I'm rooted and grounded in love. You know, I get up, I eat breakfast, I take a shower, I brush my teeth, I put on my clothes, I get outside, and I'm just, I am rooted and grounded in love until the first person looks at me the wrong way. You know? <laughs> well, that maybe the roots don't go too deep then. Okay? And, um, and so um, we got to be rooted and grounded in love. Uh, and then Paul prays, and here's where we're picking up now, may be able to comprehend with all the saints, all the, the holy ones. You know, that was one of the first things when I came out of Catholicism that I realized. A saint in Roman Catholicism, some guy who's been dead for a few hundred years, people pray to him, and supposedly there's some miracles, and then they canonize him as saint. Living believers are called saints in the Bible. So if you think you're trying to be a saint, your theology is off. If you're trusting Jesus for salvation, you already are a saint. You are already set apart for God's holy purposes. Now, if you don't think you're set apart from the world, don't worry about it. The world will let you know that you don't belong, that you're not one of them. They'll let you know. First time a guy starts telling dirty jokes and you walk away, 
you know, he'll start complaining. You're such a, you Christians are such judgmental jerks and all that. I said, well, I didn't say anything, man. I just, I just walked away. And, uh, and that's just because the Spirit of God's convicting the guy. But Jesus said, if you find the world hates you, notice hated me before it hated you. But Paul says he wants us to be able, just like the Ephesian believers, to be able to comprehend, to understand with all the saints. He wants all believers to understand what is the width and length and depth and height. The width, length, depth, and height of what? Well, he's talking about the love of Christ, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. And, um, and so um, Paul's saying... Uh, he wants us uh, to have the power, that inner strength, to grasp, intellectually grasp the immensity of Christ's love. That Christ's love is infinite. Look how Paul talked about this in Romans 8, 38 and Romans 8, 38 and 39. Paul says this about believers. Romans chapter 38 and 39. Last two verses of Romans chapter 8. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. How wide is God's love? How wide is the universe? How high is God's love? How high is the universe? It doesn't matter. We, there's no escape from God's love once you got it in Christ. Okay? And, um, and we don't think much about the mystery of the church. We don't think much about the importance of um, uh, of the church and um, yet Paul wants us with all the saints to understand how big how immense how infinite is Christ's love given to all who believe so Paul wants us to have the power and the wisdom to grasp the immensity uh, of the unlimitedness of God's love verse 19 to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And uh, he wants us to know that Christ's love surpasses human knowledge. Okay, no matter how smart we get, Christ's love is still going to be mysterious. It's still going to be beyond our wisdom, beyond our understanding. And... Um, and, but but he, he says something really interesting here. I'll do my best to explain what I think he's saying. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. He wants us to better understand God's love. And through faith, he wants Christ to dwell in our hearts so that we would be filled with the fullness of God. And it's in the context he's talking about knowledge. He wants us to have more knowledge of God. Don't, don't let... Other Christians, anti-intellectual Christians, badmouth you for going to a church which wants you to know more about God. Now, I don't know how, where this came from, but somewhere in the church people think that you could have too much knowledge and too much wisdom of God. No, that's having a more and more knowledge and wisdom of God and His Word rightly understood, that can never be a bad thing. Now, what's a bad thing is if you just want the wisdom and the knowledge and you don't want to apply it. Oh yeah, that could be a bad thing. True spirituality equals propositional truth, that the, that's the truths taught in the scriptures, plus personal relationship. There's going to be people burning in hell forever that have John 3.16 memorized. But they never applied it to themselves, and never trusted in Jesus for salvation, and entered into a personal relationship with them. Okay, and uh, uh, Paul wants us to grow. To have the fullness of God, you've got to have the knowledge of God. You've got to grow in God's knowledge. 
And I don't see how you could do that without studying the scriptures. Yeah, well, we, we don't have an excuse. I mean, it, I mean, you know, how did the Jews study the Old Testament? They'd go to a synagogue in the hottest part of the day. And believe me, there is no shade in, in Jerusalem. I searched for it. And um, they'd go to a synagogue, wait in line. When it was their turn, they'd pull out a scroll of Isaiah, memorize a passage from Isaiah, put it back, okay? Then they'd go and find a fig tree to get some shade because you got to have shade. It's so hot out there. Believe me, when I went to Masada, all the buildings that are still left, none of them have roofs. You know, there wasn't even like any shadow that I could stand by. You know, I'm watching elderly people just hanging out, and I'm like dying. And, um, um, but they would sit under a fig tree and meditate on God's Word, something they studied from God's Word. It's biblical meditation. You focus on God's Word, principles from God's Word, truths from God's Word. Eastern meditation, New Age meditation, Hindu, transcendental meditation, that, that's, you just empty your mind, surrender the control of your mind. If you do it well enough, eventually evil spirit entities called demons will come in and take over. So don't go in. God wants you to love him with all your mind. doesn't want you to throw out your mind. Um, but he wants you to grow uh, in God's word. And we have no excuse. They had, they had to go through all that to study the scriptures. The ancient Jews. Now you could buy, you could buy Bibles anywhere. I could probably... You know, there's some countries that there's so few Christians, I could probably take all the Bibles off my shelf if they could read English and, uh, and give them out to all the believers in some countries. You know, I don't even know. I lost count of how many Bibles I got. Okay? And, uh, but it amazes me. People don't bring Bibles around with them, and I was really getting down on my students. Then I found out some of them have never owned a Bible because they got these smartphones. They got access to every possible translation. They even, uh, um, we had a class that your son was in, and Chris McClellan decided to do his devotional reading when it was his turn from the Pigeon Bible, which is like Hawaiian street talk. Um, Look that up online. And, um, and, uh, but whatever the case, so now it's just like we've got no excuse for not studying God's Word. No excuse whatsoever. And... Um, uh, God wants us to grow in his knowledge. I remember um, there was a couple that used to come here years ago, and the guy told me, he says, I've been praying, the Lord told me what your problem is. And I said, well, well what's my problem? You know, I mean, by the way, a lot of times people say, people will come up to me and say, yeah, the Lord put on my heart what your problem is. I'll sometimes sit down and take notes. I, I was sitting down with a guy who was living with a woman who wasn't his, his wife, but he told me that, you know, there's some problems you need to talk about. So I figured, you know what, it could come even from a bad source. It's the genetic fallacy to reject something just because it comes from a bad source. So I took notes. And of the 35 things he talked about, there's only like three of them that I thought, they might be true. Maybe I need to pray in those areas and work in those areas or, or whatever. And I, you know, and I thanked him and sent him on his way. Um, he wasn't open to criticism of him and all, but... But I had a guy once at the church that was telling me, I know what your problem is. I said, well, what's my problem? He says, you have too much wisdom. I said, too much wisdom? He said, yeah. And um, I said, from studying the Bible, I have too much wisdom. Yeah. So he thought I should be more, I don't know, show more emotion. Yeah, dumber is a good word for it there. And, um, and, uh, but so, I, so I asked him, I said, well, who, had, who has more wisdom, me or the Apostle Paul? And, um, and he said, well, of course, the Apostle Paul. And I said, well, then he's got a bigger problem than me. And I, you know, walked away from the guy. God doesn't want us spiritually dumb. Okay? God doesn't want us spiritually dumb. God wants us to be grounded uh, in his truth. And so when we're going to be filled with the fullness of God... God wants us to be filled with his knowledge. Now, granted, when we see him face to face, we'll know fully as we're fully known. Okay? Now, even beyond that, we're still going to be learning more and more about God throughout all eternity. 
We'll never have them totally figured out. But the fullness that God wants us to have now, we'll get that fullness when we see Jesus face to face. In the meantime, we need to move in that direction. Okay? And, um, you know, um, from, my, from some of my rabbis, some of my professors throughout the years, I think, man, I wish, wish I could be as smart as them and all and stuff like that. And uh, some of them, it was like, okay, I'll never be as smart as that guy, but, but if I could just know more of God's word like that guy knows. And then 10 years later, I'm like, wow, I think I know what he knew 10 years ago. But then I'd read his latest book and find out, oh, now he knows way more than me. You're never done. Okay? You got to keep, our, our God is infinite. So you're never going to have him fully figured out. But you got to move in that direction. And so if you can have the fullness of God, that's a full knowledge of God. We got to move in that direction. Uh, but it's also the fullness of God's power. It's all that Paul's talking about. Fullness of God's power. I don't think there's anybody here. I, I know as your pastor I can say it. I do not think that God's power is unleashed in my life in an unlimited way. Now, now keep in mind, I'm not saying, um, gee, um, I should be walking around healing people any time I declare that they should be healed. That might not be God's will. But I'm sure that it's God's will that a certain level of, of, of God's power be unleashed today. And how much of that am I stifling? God wants us to have the fullness um, of that power, that knowledge, that power, and that love. Now let me give you a, a little hint of what Paul's talking about here, if I understand this correctly, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Okay? And, uh, and by the way, that, the, the, I think it's the word plethora in the, in the, in the Greek for fullness. Man, did, were the, the Gnostics going to make go to town on that. The, the fullness would be all these different layers of spiritual entities and angels and, and things. And Paul has to say in Colossians, the forerunners of the Gnostics, he had to tell them, uh, not the direct line to the Gnostics, because these guys in Colossians were actually pro-Jewish Gnostics, secret hidden knowledge, but he had to remind them that the, the fullness, the plethora of God comes in Jesus. So look at Colossians 2, 8 through 10. For us to be filled with the fullness of God, Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy. That's the wisdom, you know, love of wisdom, and empty deceit according to the tradition of men. Don't, don't fall prey to human false philosophy. Okay? And by the way, the American church is doing... We fell in love with Sigmund Freud in the 1970s and 1980s. Then pastors wanted to be movers and shakers and CEOs, you know, with the big mega church movement. And, you know, I don't, I don't, you know, now it's like, it's almost like being Marxist uh, revolutionary uh, activist. I don't know what it is, but we're always falling for the false traditions of men according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. For in him, in Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And um, I think the New American Standard says, uh, uh, for in him all the fullness of deity, all the fullness of God dwells in bodily form. Jesus is fully God. And then Paul could say in verse 10 of Colossians 2, 8 to 10, and you are complete in him. That's why I don't pray, to, I don't see any need to pray to Mary and the saints. I think it contradicts the Bible. I don't need a Roman Catholic priesthood to give me all these mystical sacraments, okay? Because I'm complete in Christ. And we got a Roman Catholic. The Roman Catholic friends used to tell us that you guys aren't really saved. There's no salvation outside the church. Well, now they've stretched the definition of the church because it's the politically correct thing to do. And so at Vatican II, we Protestants became separated brethren. Okay? And so now they say, 
Well, those Protestants, if they're really trusting in Jesus, yeah, they're Christians, but um, they don't really have the fullness of God. They're missing out on praying to Mary and the saints and venerating Mary and the Roman Catholic sacraments and the extra books in the Bible that the Catholics have and uh, all the Vatican councils. They don't believe in the uh, immaculate conception of Mary, that she was conceived without sin. They don't believe that she was assumed into bodily into heaven. Uh, they don't have all this extra stuff. And they, you know what they're acting like? They're saying you're not complete in Christ. I beg to differ. We're complete in Christ. So for me, you know, I grew up Roman Catholic. For me, it's like, um, and they call themselves the church, okay? Paul's talking about the real church, not the Roman Catholic church. Roman Catholicism, I think, was when Emperor Constantine converted, the Roman pagan state, with all that military power behind it, began to blend with biblical Christianity. So you got kind of a... Um, a hybrid there. But anybody who tells you you need Jesus and something more, that's not, that's not the Jesus that I find in my Bible. We're complete in Christ. We don't need something more than Jesus. That's why we study the Word. Okay? And scholars who study the Word write books about the Word because we want to grow in that wisdom and that knowledge of our Lord so then we can also grow um, in our love uh, for the Lord. But we're complete in Christ. For in Christ dwells all the fullness of deity and bodily form and you are complete in Him who is the head of all principality and power. So if Jesus, as God the Son, become a man, is all the fullness of God in bodily form, then it seems to me that when Paul says he prays that we would grow in the knowledge, power, and love of God so that we would be filled with all the fullness of God, it seems to me that he's saying that, you know, since the fullness of God is only found in Jesus and we're complete in Christ, he wants us to become more and more Christ-like and less and less like us. Like John the Baptist said, he must increase, but I must decrease. Okay? Now, can any of us say that we are fully Christ-like? No. So we got we to gotta keep on keeping on. Okay? Um, and, and if you've done great things for God yesterday, yesterday's victories... That's just today's mediocrity. Okay? We got to press on to be all that God called us to be. Okay? And um, we want to be filled with the fullness of God. We want to be filled with Christ through faith. Have Christ dwell in our hearts through faith. We want to be empowered by the Holy Spirit and filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, we're all indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That's like you're driving a car and the Holy Spirit's in the passenger side seat. But when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, He's driving the car and you're in the passenger seat. Amen. Okay? You don't get more of Him, He gets more of you. So you can, you can be indwelt with the Holy Spirit and not controlled by Him. But when you're filled by Him, you're not only indwelt, but you're controlled by the Holy Spirit. And... Uh, Paul is praying for that fullness of God's knowledge, power, and love, wanting us to be Christ-like. Now, back in Ephesians 3 and uh, verse 20, uh, now to him, now to Jesus, who, or to God the Father, who he's praying to, now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, According to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Again, you can write books about this. Okay? And, you know, it is so difficult to preach the meat of the word, especially when you get to Paul's writings. Even Peter knew that untrained men... We're distorting and corrupting and perverting Paul's teachings. 
But you want this. Paul has one major theme in this whole chapter, and it's the mystery of the church. That's his whole theme, the mystery of the church. But he start when he breaks that down. There's so many complexities. You know, I could probably do semi justice to this passage if I have six hours. Okay, and there's probably some third world country that there's a preacher. People are so hungry for the gospel that he probably is preaching a six-hour message right now, okay? And um, we think we're prosperous here in America, but, man, we got to keep hectic schedules just to pay the bills. How prosperous is that? What did I saw? um, They they weren't pygmies, but they were a real short tribal people group. And the ladies got together, and they would just talk, and the guys would all go out, They'd be hanging out together, and they'd set up this big, long, strong net. And then the other half of the tribe of guys would have, like, drums, and they would beat them and yell and scream. And all the wild boar would run through the brush and until one would get caught in the net. And then all these little guys would do something I don't have the guts to do, but they'd jump on the wild boar with the net and they'd break out their what looked like machetes and they'd kill the thing. And then they'd tie its legs onto a stick and they'd be cheering and yelling. And they go home. And then uh, the ladies all get together and cooked it. And the guys sat around talking stories. And when the boar was cooked, they all ate this feast. And I'm sitting there watching it and I'm thinking, the guys and the gals, they have like a two-hour workday at Tops. And here we are, we think we're so smart uh, because we managed to, to pull off the 40-hour work week. Most of us have to work our, our overtime or another job, 60, 70 weeks. We don't have a lot of time. I'm telling you, it's hard to be free without free time. Let me repeat that. It's hard to be free without free time. And if we Americans get used to living at a standard, myself included, that it's going to take me 70 hours of of work each week and I don't have enough time to spend with my missus and I don't have enough time to spend with my, my daughter and grandson and I don't have enough time to fellowship with my Christian brothers and sisters and all we can chisel out each week is an hour and a half on Sundays or two hours on Sundays and by by the way I want to commend you our church service is longer than most church services in America and I'm not saying there's any easy answers to it but it's almost impossible to be free without free time. So we're living a lie here in America. You know, why? Do, what was it? Um, uh, some conservative speaker, I think he was a Jewish guy, I don't even think he was a, a, a believer, I think it was Ben Shapiro, wanted to speak at a college, but every time he goes to speak at a college, there's all these big protests, and so... He can't speak. You know, they break windows, they protest, the police come, and they cart him away so he doesn't get killed. And so finally, another conservative professor says, no problem. We'll just schedule it for 9 a.m. Saturday morning. (laughs) And uh, because all the protesters, they got so much free time, they party and everything, and they they don't get up that early on Saturday mornings. Why are they, Monday through Friday, we see protests going on all the time. Very rarely do you see law-abiding, traditional people protest. Why? We have jobs. Okay? And, um, and it looks like, I think we've reached the point where it takes a lot of time to stay free, and we don't have um, a lot of time. But, uh, but whatever the case, Paul's got so much here, and we have so little time to go over it, so I'm hoping you take home the notes and read through it. But, but Paul says, look, now to, to, to God who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. You know, sometimes we're asking for something. We think we're asking for what's best for us. God knows what's best for us. You know, we might be praying for a brand new car, and God says, no, I got something way better than that for you. Now, if we're not real spiritually minded, when we get what God's got intended for us, we might be a little unhappy and because uh, we're always trying to keep up with the jo- Joneses, but... God can do immeasurably more than we imagine or ask for. And how does he do that? According to the power 
that works in us. According to the power that works in us. Well, what power is that? Well, Paul just talked about that. We covered it uh, before our series on the end times, so maybe some of us might have forgotten, but in Ephesians chapter 1, um, Paul talks in from verses 17 to 23, he even ends it with the, his body, the body of Christ, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Again, the fullness of Christ. Um, but he talks about that power in verse 19. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? God wants you to know how much power is at work, how much of God's power is at work in your life. Okay? What is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Right hand of the Father is the supreme position of authority in the universe. Now, now look at that. God is at work in us. Okay? He can do immeasurably more than we can even imagine or ask for according to his power at work in us. How, how powerful is that power of God that's at work in us? Well, Paul tells us here in Ephesians 1, um, the, the working of his mighty power, verse 20, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him, exalted him at the right hand of the Father in heavenly places. Now you might feel like, you know, you might say, well, Pastor Phil, I'm not real, a real special guy. I wasn't popular in high school. If I went to college, I wasn't popular there. I'm not the most popular guy at work and this and that. Okay? And maybe all those things are true. I mean, all those things are true of me. Maybe those things are true, but that's not the way we should look at it. We should look at it in the context of spiritual power. And how much power, brothers and sisters, how much power, how much of God's power is at work in you right now? And I know it might not look that way. When Phil Fernandez wakes up grumpy, okay, you don't see the power of God at work in his life. But God's power is at work in me. But God gives us the freedom to stifle that. To put a bowl over the candle so our light doesn't shine. How much power is at work in you right now? How much power is at work in me right now? The same power that it took God the Father to raise Jesus from the dead. Now keep in mind, when he raised Jesus from the dead, he did not return to Jesus' mortality. His mortal body, a body capable of dying took on, when it was raised, immortality. So there's a resurrection and a transfiguration to immortality. That's the kind of power that is unleashed in our lives. The same power that it took God the Father to exalt Jesus to the Father's right hand, the supreme position of authority in the universe. That's how much power God wants to unleash in our lives. That's the power that is at work in us. And so what do we do? If you're like me, you make excuses. You make excuses. Well, I couldn't be all that God called me to be today because, you know, I was tired. Maybe, you know, maybe I was tired. Maybe God wanted me to rest. But maybe I could have prayed more on that day. I don't know about you. I could do a lot more praying that I'm doing right now. It shames me to say that. Um, but we've got the, the resurrection power and the exaltation power of God at work in our lives right now. And so what do we do? We stifle it. We make excuses. And the American church has been doing that for so many generations now that we're losing it all. We're losing it all in this country. 
Now, God promised the gates of Hades will not prevail against his church. He made no promise for, specifically for the American church. He made no promise specifically to the Ephesian church. So you guys don't get back that first love you lost? I'm going to take your lampstand from you. And that's what happened to the Ephesians, by the way. They were a port city, so big ships with material to trade and to sell used to pull up. And so they were like a thriving city. And then when they lost their first love, little by little, the, the waterway that the ships would come in silted, got filled with mud. So, you know, it used to be right here was the, was the water and the ships would come in. But then eventually, you know, there was a quarter mile of mud and then a half a mile of mud and then two miles of mud and then three miles of mud and the, the Ephesian church died. They lost their lampstand. Each and every local church has to, has to ask that. Not just a country's church like the American church. We've got to pray, Lord, do not take our lampstand. We know we're secure in Christ. Don't take our lampstand from us. But I'm telling you, if we don't recognize and access the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, the same power that it took to raise Jesus from the dead and to exalt him to the Father's right hand, if we keep making excuses, Trinity Bible Fellowship could lose its lampstand. The American church could, lo could lose its lampstand. And, um, and so God can do immeasurably more than we can imagine or ask for uh, according to his power of work in us. You know, it is tough. I, I'll sit down and try to figure out how many people have we reached with the gospel? You know, through, through speaking engagements, through books, through um, radio programs, through um, the internet, um, you know, just through different ways, through debates, through lectures, whatever it may be. How many people have we actually reached? And... Uh, I don't know if that's the scale God uses. I think God tends, I think God cares more about the work I do here at TBF, at Trinity Bible Fellowship, and more about the work that I do in my classroom teaching students. Because I think that the Lord, when the Lord Jesus, you look at his life, he's more into quality discipleship than quantity evangelism. Okay? We need quantity evangelism, but then we've got to have follow-up and get the people involved in quality discipleship. You know, Alan was telling me last night, they went to IHOP, him and Carl, and I don't know if there are a few other guys there or whatever, but the 12 guys, 12, you know, can, what can you do with 12 guys? Well, what did Jesus do with 12 guys? Right? And even one of them was a, was a betrayer. And Jesus turned the world upside down. Um, the, the American church needs to think small instead of thinking big and those little things when you when you disciple somebody when come, somebody comes to you um, for spiritual advice for biblical advice that's where the powerful things are going on right now and by the way the government can outlaw this they're doing it in Canada the government can right now just send in officers and and if our Kitsap County Sheriffs and the Bremerton PD, if, they, if they're okay with it, they can come in, slap cuffs, and take the leaders away, intimidate the people, and break us up. They can, uh, they can fence in the building and just shut that down. They can stop this. You know what they can't stop? You getting together with a couple buddies. Maybe you can't even get into IHOP, but maybe you and a couple buddies can go to a park and talk scripture together. Okay? And um, um, they, can, they, can, they can throw you in prison and throw away the key. If you're not in solitary confinement, you start a church. You find some guys that are open to the gospel. You might get punched by a couple until you find one guy who's open to the gospel. Maybe one of the guys who punches you on Monday by Thursday, he's one of your disciples. Um, but you've got to allow God to unleash that power in your life we have to stop making excuses. So, so basically, what will it look like when we allow the, the power of the Holy Spirit to be unleashed in our lives? I don't even know. 
I really don't even know. Okay? And we always try to, like, you know, you want, like, the Bill Gates version of Christianity, you know, the mega churches, whatever it is, billions of dollars, that almost always turns out bad. But in some way, shape, or form, I don't think any of us have attained to the fullness of God. I don't think any of us could say, I, Jesus fully works through me and the Holy Spirit fully works through me in an unhindered way. No. You know what Phil Fernandez's problem is? There's too much Phil Fernandez in his life. Too much Phil Fernandez and not enough Jesus. And, uh, and I'm telling you, you know, just a little advice here. The Holy Spirit is going to try to quench that power, stifle it. He's going to try to get you to not do what God's called you to do. That's plan A. And then when you do what God calls you to do, he switches to plan B. Guess what happens when you do what God calls you to do? Somebody pats you on the back. Good person, godly person. God bless you, brother. God really spoke to my heart or whatever. And somebody else, yeah, yeah, I've heard about you, and uh, you're really doing God's work, and isn't that? So first, Satan is going to try to get you not to be all that God called you to be. When you decide to be all that God calls you to be and you act on that, then Satan is going to try to get you to be so conceited and um, arrogant that you'll keep going through the motions, but you'll be like a modern-day Pharisee who thinks he's better than everybody else. So we got to avoid both. What God showed me to do is that when people compliment me, ne never, by the way, when people compliment you for doing God's work, never slam them. Because God may have put it on their heart to encourage you. Because Lord knows we all need encouragement. But we also need humility. And so I try to go out of my way to remind people that God's still working on me. One, one pastor Gave a graduate, at a graduation ceremony, gave a, a message, and he, he kept bringing up examples from me at the graduation, and his old message was, after you die, you want the Lord to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Now, he never applied it to me. You know, we're buddies. He knows me. But some elderly lady applied it to me. And we were sitting in the back row of church. wasn't well lit the area, but she, this elderly lady found me. She said, uh, Pastor Phil Fernandez, God is really using you, and I feel like God is saying right now, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And I was like, okay, I'm going to thank this lady and be courteous to her, but somehow i got to let her know I'm not dead yet. Okay? I still got, you know, I still got maybe, you know, if I'm blessed, you know, 20, 30, maybe even 40 years, who knows? There's a lot of time to blow it. Okay? Look at Noah. What was the dude, like 700, 800, 900 years old when he blew it? Naked and drunk. Well done, thou good and faithful, sir. I, that, the book's still out on me. And no one's ever beat me up for preaching the gospel. No one's beaten any of us up, as far as I know, for preaching the gospel. Okay, one guy got beat up for preaching the, preaching the gospel there. But whatever the case, the book is still out on us. I prayed with Christian brothers from uh, uh, Africa and from uh, Middle Eastern countries where they were trying to compliment me because we were helping them out. But they were the ones whose bodies were deformed because of being beaten uh, for the, the, the sharing uh, of the gospel. And then we're going to just close with this in verse 21. So... Allow God to do what he wants to do in your life. Allow him to unleash God's power in us. But then he gets the glory, not us. Verse 21, to him, to God be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. It is for God's glory that we live and move and have our being. Okay? Um, see, all, you know, this is crazy. The, the church is to be what creation was supposed to be. Okay? Josh is handing out like little copies of the Westminster 
um, catechism and all. And why, why were we created? Why do we exist? We exist to glorify God. But guess what? Guess what happened? Romans 3.23 happened. Genesis 3 happened. Adam and Eve fell in the garden. Romans 5.12, we inherited that sin nature. And then Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So guess what the church is? The church is what creation was supposed to be. The church is what creation has failed to be. The creation has fallen. It doesn't glorify God. And so God, uh, through the new creation, he saves us so that the church is what creation has failed to be. To God be the glory forever in the church. Don't think to yourself as, well, I'm real weak and this and that. Yeah, you're weak in your own strength. But you have God's resurrection power and exaltation power that he wants to unleash in your life. And he wants you to do it not for your glory, but for his glory. Okay? So in conclusion, Jew and Gentile are equal heirs of salvation through faith in Jesus. Um, we should not be ashamed to suffer for Jesus. We need to grow spiritually in God's love, God's power, and God's knowledge. And we need to appreciate the church, the body of Christ on earth. Access the power that God wants to unleash in your life, but do it, not for your glory, but for the glory of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, I believe it's verse 31, whether you eat or, whatever you do, whatever you eat or drink, do all things for the glory of God. And so let's start living the way God intended us to live. Now that we trust in Jesus for salvation, Allow the Holy Spirit to work His power through us and in us so that we can help build the kingdom of God on earth for the glory of our God. And I'm going to ask John to come up. Now we get a chance to pledge our allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ who died for us as we celebrate the Lord's Supper.